0: My mai mai and welcome to Our Changing World. Cor Alison balance Tonight's show is all about this bird. It's a takahe, one of New Zealand's rarest birds. For the first half of the 20th century it was thought to be extinct. Coming up... We're going to hear an eyewitness account of its rediscovery almost 70 years ago, an event which made headlines around the world. And we'll find out how this big flightless bird is getting on today, with an exciting announcement from the Department of Conservation. But first, a bit of takahe background. You might remember last year when Deerstalkers Association hunters shot four takahe after mistaking them for pukeko during a pukeko cull on Motutapu Island in the Hauraki Gulf. So how are these two birds related? Here's Takahe ranger Glenn Greaves from the Department of Conservation.
1: They share a common ancestor, so they are very closely related, but uh, Takahe have been in New Zealand for much, much longer. They've evolved to the conditions here, become a lot larger. Their colouring is quite different. People say they're like a a power shell with red legs, which is quite accurate compared to a a black and blue pukeko.
0: Two species of takahe used to live in New Zealand, but only the South Island species survives today. It's the largest living species of rail in the world and can weigh more than three kilos. Glenn says that South Island takahe today are listed as nationally critical, which means their numbers are very low, although their population may never have been very
1: large. From fossil evidence, it looks like they were never super common. So they're, they're a grassland bird living from from sea level all the way up to the alpine zones. And prior to human arrival, there wasn't a lot of grassland in New Zealand, so we don't think they were ever a very, very common bird.
0: The takahe was certainly very rare by the time of European settlement. Just four birds were seen between 1849 and 1898, and then, for half a century, nothing. Many people thought takahe were extinct, although Invercargill doctor Geoffrey Orbell wasn't so sure. This is where Joan Watson comes into the picture. Joan and her late husband Rex were young friends of Dr Orbell. Like him, they were keen trampers and the pair would join him on hunting trips in Fiordland. Here's Joan with the amazing story of the rediscovery of the takahe.
2: My late husband was a secondary school boy and he was a sea scout and Dr Orbell was a scout master. And that's really how it all starts. And he invited some of them to go to his workshop. And He was building a big seaworthy boat, and I think it was called a catch. And if anybody was interested to come along, and he would teach them a little bit of boat building. And, of course, my husband went every weekend, forever and ever, until it was launched. And then he was crew, and he always raved about cruising round Stewart Island, the beautiful beaches, lovely islands and deep sea fishing and it all sort of started then. I met him and through him I met the Orwell family. So how did you meet your husband? Skiing at Garston in those days. Every Friday night everybody put on their packs and climbed up to the hut. I loved it. So you were a bit of an outdoor girl? Always. Played sport. And still would be playing sport if I was fit enough, so he told you about going sailing did, Oh, yes. did you get to go out on the boat? no, I didn't By that time, it was sold, and they left the island. It settled at Tiana, so I had this wonderful hospitality. I always went along I'd never carried a gun. I was the girl without the gun, but I always seemed to to go on expeditions and things like that. I was really privileged to have been. When I look back, I realise that, you know, I was blessed having all this wonderful fieldland and with a man who was a leader. He was brilliant, well-read, and when you were out in the field with him, he knew so much about flora and fauna that, um, you know, everything was a lesson to be learnt. It was tremendous, wonderful time. So these were mostly little hunting trips you were going on? Yes, yes. I can remember the ones I enjoyed were he adapted an old car and it was called the Swamp Buggy and we would all pile on board and to f- drive up along the Eupakarora stream looking for a pig. Oh, I used to love that outing but then there were so many more. Always something to do in that area. It's a fantastic place. It's just a paradise for people who like the outdoors. And this was tramping mostly below the bush line or did you go up um, above the bush line as well? Well I belonged to the Alpine Club for a while and c- climbed at Homer, so tramping and climbing. And what kind of wildlife were you seeing when you were out in the hills in those days? Birds mainly, yes. Sometimes a deer or more than that. I have seen 30 deer in a herd away back, yes. Moving from one area to another and, of course, looking for takahi where Doc always said, keep an eye out just in case, because it's a vast area and they could be anywhere. So what did he used to say about the takahi Well, he was more or less convinced that the, it was here somewhere, but he wasn't sure, because there were so many stories, and he had um, listened to everybody who talked about the bird in the past. Even from when he was quite young, I understand, he showed an interest. And he suspected they were in the Murchison Mountains. Of course, we called it Natornis. Natornis, Natornis. So we're talking about the 1940s here. 1948. Easter was when they went in deer talking. I didn't go for that trip. I don't know why, but probably I was into sport or something for that weekend. But um, my husband, Neil McCrosty and Dr Orbell. Went into the Murchison Mountains And they hadn't been in before, you see So they're right up on the top Looking, looking down, down on this, on this Yes, and notice really. this beautiful lake Which was called the Lake of the Friendless The Māoris called it that And um, the valley didn't have a name Now the lake is Lake Orbel And the valley is Taki Valley But in those days it was the Lake of the Friendless Yes, yes It's beautiful, beautiful lake I saw deer, so they climbed down and shot one deer. My husband, Rex, he went down to the lake to have a drink and saw some footprints. And he called Doc over, and Doc always had a pipe. And with that, he scratched the length of toes on this and got in touch with Dr. Fowler and Professor Sharples, and they all decided it was a white heron. So that that was that, but not Doc. He had a feeling it was more than that. He'd heard an odd bird call while they were in there, something unusual, and thought that might it was inspecting or going in and investigating again. Were they all quite excited when they came out? Oh, yes, quite excited, or Doc was. But I think Neil and Rex, um, it was just another expedition, you know. They weren't so sure about everything. And um, it was a very cold winter with snow well down, so there was no way that they could go in until it was the 19th of November. And I was invited along. (laughs) We had netting, fish net. I can't remember how many yards of fishnet to um, catch the birds. I would hope to catch the birds. But we left at 3.30 in the morning. You know, conditions on the lake were ideal. And uh, the sun came up and everything was bright red. It was gorgeous scene. It was brilliant. And we had breakfast on board. And we tied the boat up very near the entrance to the glowworm caves and then climbed up and up and up through um, rock, windfalls, beautiful beech forest. It was a very difficult climb. It took about three hours. And we came out just by the stream the at the outlet onto a flat area, which was covered by boxwood and snowgrass. Snowgrass was deep. It was right up to our waists. It was huge. Wonderful cover for birds. And Doc said, follow me and don't talk and only hand movements. So we walked only a very short distance through this snow grass, and Doc crouched and put put his finger up to say he could see one bird. So we were all crouching and peering, and through the snow grass, I caught a glimpse of the bright red beak. Then he put two fingers up, and there was a, a mate, a pear, So with that, he gave us orders quietly to put the netting in a semicircle around and then quietly and very slowly. The birds weren't disturbed at all. We were so cautious and we slowly drove them into the net. I looked down, there was the bird, and I thought, I will have to do my thing. (laughs) So I crouched down and grabbed it. I was almost throttling it. <laughs> but I wasn't going to let it go. It was well trapped in the netting, and somebody came along and helped to release it. So, when you had that one in your hands, yes. what were you thinking? Apart from, I'm not going to oh, let this one it run away. Oh, this is it. I was overwhelmed. We've got it. You know, I couldn't believe it. And it's a beautiful bird. It's a brilliant bird. And so they were taken down to the beach. We had what we call lunch, but it was only half past nine. We couldn't believe our good fortune. We expected to be in the valley all day and not see a bird. And so we were overwhelmed. As I haven't got the Time magazine, but the Time magazine said we returned in ornithological ecstasy. I love that. (laughs) It was world news. It was, and Doc knew that. Doc said that at the time. He said, now, <clears throat> as soon as we'd caught, caught them and released them, he said, now we've got to get to Invercargill, to the paper, and spread the news. And it did. It just went, it just panicked from everywhere. People asked for articles and um, talk. yeah, had to talk to groups and so on. And it was a great time. Because everyone had thought it was extinct. Yes, yes, they did. Yes. And you'd rediscovered it. Yeah. Amazing. <laughs> it was. Yeah. And it's National Geographic. You see, it was in all the magazines. The best magazines, you know, the, the glossy magazines. What struck you most about the bird when you first saw it? Oh, the colour. The size and, and the colour. It would be like a rooster, about as standing, as t- tall as a rooster. But it had this magnificent beak, and then all the beautiful colouring down the back, and then a white tail. Amazing, spectacular in every way. Oh, you couldn't miss them in amongst the green grass and amongst the tussock and so on.
0: What did Dr. Feller think? Well,
2: in January, uh, Dr. Feller organised a party and there were 10 of us. I was the only female. Again? <laughs> but all the best of, of the men in. Um, wasn't the Department of Conservation? I think it was Internal Affairs in those days with Dr. Orbell, and we were in there for a week, inter- living in tents, and exploring. And um, we actually saw fifty birds, but Dr. Fowler thought there would be a hundred. Thought there must be, you know, because we spread out and we walked the valley up and down, and we were counting and doing all. It was that was another enjoyable occasion. And did you ever yeah. go into the Murchison's again after this? Yes, I've been in by helicopter on um, two occasions. The 50th, Neil McCrosty, Rex Watson, Joan Watson and Dr Orbell. Yes, we we went in by helicopter. Was it so. nice to go back? Oh, great. And, and then later, I can't remember the occasion, I think the family all decided we should go in for a... So, did you describe yourself as an ornithologist? No, not really. But I'm deeply interested now in and following it. I look for any news.
0: That was Joan Watson, one of the rediscoverers of the Takahe and the Murchison Mountains back in 1948. And you can see some of the photos that appeared in newspapers and glossy magazines around the world at the time by heading to our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash world. Now let's catch up on some of the takahe news that's happened since then. Here's Doc's Glenn Greaves again, reminding us just how few takahe there once were.
1: They got down to a low of of around 90 90 to 100 individuals um, in the early 1980s. At rediscovery in 1948, it was estimated there were anywhere between 200 and 400 individuals left, and they were all in the Murchison Mountains in Fiordland. A lot of work was put in between that time and and the early 1980s to try and determine the extent of the population in there and the cause of of decline. It was thought that was a combination of of predation by stoats, but also competition for for food from from red deer. Uh, So red deer numbers were were really, really high in all of Fiordland, including the Murchison Mountains and they feed on the same food resources, uh, was noticed that the tussock health and general um, alpine vegetation health in the Mitchisons was actually getting quite poor. So following that, a lot of lot of effort went into doing deer control and also stoat control in, in the mountains.
0: And numbers of stoats and deer in there are pretty much under control now?
1: Yeah, that's correct. So so we estimate the deer numbers in there are between 300 and 400, and we think that's that's a good level for for keeping the tussock and other plants in, in relatively good health. And we've seen a, a big improvement in, in that plant health since deer control started. Regarding stoat numbers, uh, they, they fluctuate with, like, like most beach forest environments. Control started in the 70s and now has ramped up to the point where we've got a very high density of stoat traps in the Mitchison Mountains, which is over 55,000 hectares but we still get plague events happening in the Murchison Mountains.
0: Now, the Murchison Mountains, they were the last stronghold of the takahē. Was that because that was a really good place for them, or was that just their last stand, do you think?
1: Oh, we think it's a combination of both. It's certainly not ideal habitat for them, but it's obviously good enough. Uh, the main reason why we think it was the last stand of the takahē is because it's effectively an island surrounded by three sides by the lake, so those introduced predators and, and pests such as deer and stoats took longer to get into the, into the Murchison Mountains than, than elsewhere. Also, there were very few people in there, no cats, no dogs uh, to worry about. And on top of that being being relatively good for them, habitat-wise, uh, it meant that the taikai were able to hang on, but they came pretty close to extinction even in there.
0: For many years, DOC ran an intensive captive rearing programme for taikai, The birds lay up to three eggs, but in the wild, seldom raise more than one chick. So dock rangers would collect excess eggs from the Murchison Mountains and take them to a rearing centre at Burwood Bush. I visited there in 2009, and here's part of the story I recorded with Glenn back then, as he fed some small chicks using takahe puppets. So these are
1: our youngest chicks. They're about 10 days old. They were removed from two of our... Breeding pairs of the resident Takahe here at Bearwood.
0: So you've just put a blue puppet that covers your whole arm and hand.
1: Yep, and we've got a pillow speaker inside that puppet. Let me play the tape. It plays adult contact calls. So I draw back the little curtain.
0: Looks like a diorama in a museum.
1: So we try to make it look as natural as possible. Um, we use turf that we cut from the lawn. We also plant out tussock in there.
0: So what is it that you're feeding them?
1: This is a mix of vegetables, um, pharynx, mm. baby food, and ornithon, which is a aviary bird food.
0: And the other thing that's in there is a fiberglass model mum, so mm. they can tuck themselves under that and hide.
1: That's where they sleep at night and also during the day when they're not feeding or cruising around, there. they sit under there. Mm. There's another speaker under that mum also producing contact calls.
0: Mm-hmm. Is it heated at all?
1: Yep, we've got a heat pad in there, um, it's at like 29 degrees at the moment. And that gradually gets turned down as the chicks get older and then gets removed once they're about three weeks of age. So this is the one way mirror, they can't actually see us at the moment.
0: Once they were big enough, the chicks spent their first winter in outdoor pens at Burwood Bush, being looked after by a handful of foster takahe parents. The following spring, the chicks would be released back in the wild in the Murchison Mountains. In 2011, however, DOC stopped this program, as research showed that captive-reared birds just weren't breeding as well as the wild ones.
1: What we were finding was that they survived just as well, they would have just as many nests and as many eggs, and fertility was just as high as the wild-reared birds, but they were very poor at rearing their own chicks, so the the number of chicks they reared through to fledge was about half as many as a wild bird.
0: Now what happens at Burwood Bush is that 19 pairs of takahi raise their chicks in the safety of one hectare pens that are surrounded by predator-proof fences.
1: So the new approach, instead of having a small number of breeding pairs receiving a large number of juveniles or a large number of chicks to rear, uh, we, we try to mirror what you would see in the wild, so a natural situation, and that means having having the birds rear their own chicks, uh, but where possible you would provide um provide them with more than one chick. So at Burwood survivorship is very high of the chicks. We we know that with supplementary feeding in a safe environment they can easily rear two chicks. So we do a lot of nest management and that means pulling away infertile eggs. If a if a nest has has two infertile eggs, you can destroy that nest and those birds will reclutch effectively like chickens. So so by doing that nest management, we can swap eggs between nests. Um, we can encourage birds to have as many chicks as, as possible.
0: Glenn mentioned earlier that in the 1980s, there were just 90 to 100 individuals in the Murchison Mountains. So what's happened to that population since then?
1: After a lot of predator control and deer control and, and the nest management, we managed to get that population up to a high of around 160 2007. Unfortunately then we had a large stoke plague event which wiped out nearly, nearly 40% of the population. The population dropped to around 90, 80, 89, 90 and since then we've got it up to around 110 which it is at currently.
0: As well as surviving in the Murchison Mountains, Takahe have been moved to a number of predator free islands and mainland sanctuaries.
1: We've got takahe on 19 sites now. Because of the event in 2007, we didn't have full confidence that we could maintain a healthy population in the wild. So we, we've expanded the, the insurance populations, I guess, um, across New Zealand to, to provide a little bit of, of backup just in case the Murchison's or Burwood or any one population tips over. We've got we've got plenty of backup there. So yeah, 19 sites, the latest of which was, was Rotoroa Island and the Hurunui Gulf.
0: And how are the birds doing on the islands?
1: Survivorship is very good. Productivity varies between sites, and a lot of the, the islands are full with very young birds. The so Mototapu Island, Tafinui, uh Rotoraua have very, very quite, quite young birds at the moment, so we're waiting to see how well they'll do over this, this summer and in the coming years. But it's looking very promising. Mototapu at the moment has, has six nests from, from seven pairs, so that's, that's pretty good going.
0: The big question is, how many takahe do we have to, all together now?
1: We're just about to cross the 300 mark, which is huge for the program. We've never been at this stage since since rediscovery. So, yeah, it's, it's a huge milestone. But we're we're certainly far from out of the woods. The real push for this program to, is to release birds back into the wild, into their natural environment, rather than on golf courses or or islands. Those places do hold value for us for advocacy and also as an insurance populations. Um, but Our our, our real aim is to have them back into the tussock country, ideally in the South Island, so that's what we're looking at doing over the next few years.
0: So it's nearly 70 years since they were rediscovered in Fiordland, and it's the first time then with 300 birds that we're sort of back where we were 70 years ago.
1: Exactly. It's taken a long time, but we feel we're in a very healthy place now with with so many birds across so many different sites. We can afford to take risks now with with trialling a new wild site, which... We're hoping to do over the next couple of years. So that's that's really exciting for us.
0: Where would that new wild site be?
1: We haven't decided hundred percent, but we've we've been visiting sites up in the Kaharangi, and there are also several sites down in Southland and even sub Antarctic Islands that we're looking at and we're going through the process of selecting which is, is the most likely to work for us in the next next six months or so.
0: Could the new wild site also be in Fiordland?
1: It could be, but what what we're expecting is that birds will do a lot better in a site that's, that has more benign climate, doesn't have the avalanche risk and the harsh winters that Fiordland does have. So what we're looking for is, is a is a tussock, a large area of tussock country, that has longer summers and um, less less chance of misadventure.
0: Any other exciting new efforts underway, or pretty much are you just going to carry on business as usual, apart from looking for a potential new wild site?
1: Uh, So it's business as usual. The the birds do all the work for us now. The good thing is is that we're on a a growth trajectory. We're now growing at nearly 10% a year. It's about providing good habitat for them, good safe um, breeding zones for them. So that's where all of our effort goes. In the next couple of years, we're we're getting the Murchison Mountains population back up to a point of carrying capacity, which is around 180 birds. And following that, all the effort will go into that that new large wild site.
0: Thanks, Glenn. Glenn Greaves, Takahe Ranger with the Department of Conservation, with the great news that Takahe numbers have hit 300 for the first time in more than 50 years. And that's the show. But you can listen to this Takahe story again, or check out the photos on our webpage, page, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. And we're on Twitter and Facebook at RNZ Science. Catch you next week, but from me, Alison Balance. Good night and Paul Marie.